Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 36, Stark Raving Iceman. Hey, hey, listeners! I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Section whom we section. Launder your hat when we launder our hats. And today I'll be talking about Season 3, Episode 1, Stark Raving Dad. It first aired on September 19th, 1991. And I'm going to be talking about Utsi the Iceman, whose 5,000-year-old remains were discovered in the Utsal Alps on September 19th, 1991, the very same day Stark Craving Dad was first aired. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore Retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. We're back! We are. We're excited because it's series three. It's regarded as the golden age of The Simpsons. And we're starting off with the episode featuring the dead turbo nonce. Oh, well. So if you guys want to skip this one, that's fine. But but you'll miss quite a good number one. Yeah. And some interesting philosophical debates and... Oatsy the Iceman. You will. Who I'm really looking forward to. Yeah. But I just want to say a little little word on legal things. This episode stars Michael Jackson, and Michael Jackson is dead. And when someone's dead, you can say anything about them you'd like. Because with libel and slander, that is against a person's reputation, and it's fair to protect their legal integrity and their employability, stuff like that. But obviously, all that doesn't apply when they're dead. So you can say whatever you like about any dead person. Winston Churchill, cocaine fueled alcoholic. And I'm not even lying, there he was. Yes. <laughs> we shall fight them on the beaches, all that. You know, the reason why he went, we shall fight them all on the beaches, bleh, at that particular speaking style, because he was blind drunk. He was. To be fair, I, I wouldn't have wanted his job at his time sober, but uh, you no. do raise a good point. Um, anyway, enough about Winston Churchill. <laughs> More about Lord Palmerston. No, no, let's get on to the, uh, onto the episode. So September the 19th, 1991, we made a bit of a jump because we're into season three now, even though season two had a delayed final episode stroke premiere of season three stroke. Well, we went into that in the last episode, so I won't bore you with it again. Because I hear you shout, Gareth, what was the UK number one at that stage? Oh, good. I've no idea. Well, despite the two months since the end of season two... Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> we still have everything I do, I do it for you at number one. Of course we do, because it was number one forever. It was. So let's go to perhaps the most high-profile casualty of Brian Adams's reign of terror. <coughs> at number two, despite being so ubiquitous and popular at the time that it's nigh on unthinkable that it never made the top spot, it's Right Said Fred with I'm Too Sexy. Oh, right. Okay. Right Said Fred are essentially the Fairbrass Brothers, future gay time TV presenter Richard as lead singer, and his appropriately named sibling Fred on guitar, with Rob Manzoni also on guitar uh, from 1990 until 1997, so he was a fixture during their glory days. They also had a drummer called Ray Weston, who left in 1990 
to join Wishbone Ash, the aging prog rock band. Now, he's not involved in their main story because of when he left, but can we just take a second to appreciate what on the surface is an absolutely bizarre career move? <laughs> From a fun, yeah. flirty Europop act to a hairy, noodling prog group. Brilliant. I'm Too Sexy was the first of three mega hits for the band in the space of about a year. And spoilers, they're basically our KLF for this season. We'll be hearing about all of their hits during season three of Retrospecticus. But this remains their signature song, inspired by the narcissism of the models who frequented the gym that the Fairbrass brothers were for some reason running at the time. It was originally recorded as an indie rock song, but a radio plugger recognised the possibilities of the hook and encouraged them to do a dance version. And they did, albeit one with a big nod to classic rock as it cheekily half-inches the riff from Third Stone from the Sun by the Jimi Hendrix Experience. Ooh. And lo, it was huge. This was everywhere at the time. But the timing was awful in the UK, and the song spent six weeks at number two. You'd have to think it would have been number one were it not for Brian Adams's chart domination. Mm, definitely. Elsewhere, though, it was number one in Australia, Austria, Ireland, and New Zealand, plus Canada's Dance and Urban chart, and most stunning of all, the Billboard Hot 100 and the Dance chart in the US. Wow. So after all those years and all the British bands who traped around America on never-ending tours, it was Right Said Fred that finally <laughs> broke America. That's bizarre. Fun fact for you. Richard Fairbrass was voted Joint Rear of the Year in 1994. Okay. The bizarre, independently adjudicated Best Arse Contest had never had a male winner until he shared that year's prize with pop singer Mandy Smith, probably best known for her marriage to former Rolling Stones bassist Bill Wyman, who is 34 years older than her. Okay. I've got, and you could not have prepared for this, but I've got a couple of questions for you about the Rear of the Year contest. God, okay. So now, since that landmark year, every year they give the title to a woman and a man. So can you name the current holders? Uh, no. Right, okay. <laughs> I have no idea whatsoever. Well, that is semi-retired tennis ace Andy Murray and television presenter Amanda Holden. That's so arbitrary. <laughs> I don't believe I've ever seen Amanda Holden's posterior because no. she's usually sat down. No. Andy and, Murray, obviously. Yeah, but when you think Andy Murray, you don't think nice ass. Well, apparently someone uh, does. Okay. And apparently they're on the judging panel for the, the <laughs> rear of the year. Um, also, can you name the only person to have won rear of the year twice? Demi Moore. No, no, I believe that the prize is just limited to British people because it, oh, is, right. it is a UK prize. Um, it is Countdown's original mathematician, Carol Vorderman. Okay, yeah. Who won in 2011 with Anton Dubeck and again in 2014 with Ollie Murs. <laughs> so there we go. Quick uh, rear of the year diversion for you there. <laughs> uh, but back to the episode. and The US viewership was a Nielsen of 139 which is around 12.8 million homes and a 23% audience share. Despite all the hype, it was still beaten by The Cosby Show and was the second highest rated Fox programme after Married with Children. God, choosing between Michael Jackson and Bill Cosby. God, they had it good then, didn't they? Yes. The production number, 7F24. So, note that we're still in the 7Fs here, which was season two's production block. 
Two of the first three episodes of this season were produced in that block, but the rest of the season is block 8F. This particular episode was the last one produced in the 7Fs, but given the hype behind it, it was earmarked early on as a potential season premiere for the next season. Oh, I see. The credited writers were Al Jean and Mike Reese. As we discussed in episode 4, there's no disgrace like Manuel Noriega. (laughs) But there's something extra to add today since we're at the start of season 3. For you see, this episode and the upcoming When Flanders Failed are the last two of the last production block, as just discussed. For that production block, the showrunners were Matt Groening, Sam Simon and James L. Brooks. For block 8F, and the block that comprises most of season 4, your showrunners are Al Jean and Mike Reese. Mm. In other changes, the opening theme was replaced with the arrangement that is used to this day, although I can't tell much of a difference myself. The reason for that change was that this is the first episode to be recorded in Dolby Surround. The show's ongoing success had also made it easier to attract celebrity guests, with a person we'll be discussing a bit later, Aerosmith, Spinal Tap, and a slew of baseball stars dropping in to make some quite substantial appearances in this season. And behind the scenes, Jay Kogan and Wallace Wolodarski would leave the writing staff at the end of this season, to be replaced by future Simpsons legends Bill Oakley and Josh Weinstein. But we'll discuss them further when they start getting credited as writers in season four. Okie dokie. The chalkboard gag is I Am Not A Dentist, and the couch gag was the couch tipping over backwards and the family crashing through the wall. And what happens? Well, here we go. The Simpsons are going to have two different openings according to when you watch the episode. Okay. We'll get to the original in a second, but if you caught the January 30th, 1992 rerun of this episode, it featured an extra opening scene, for which I believe at least some of the animation was lifted from Season 2, Episode 2, Simpson and Delilah. In it, the family sit in front of the television, watching then-President George H.W. Bush deliver his infamous statement, We are going to keep on trying to strengthen the American family to make American families a lot more like the Waltons and a lot less like the Simpsons. Yes. To which Bart responds, Hey, we're just like the Waltons. We're praying for an end to the Depression too. Yes, I remember that very well. In the opening proper, which, had you seen said rerun, would have started immediately after, Bart is rudely awakened by Lisa, who reminds him that her birthday is imminent. We establish that he has a less than stellar record in celebrating said, and he promises to mend his ways, before immediately showing his usual lack of care by not paying any attention to Maggie, who has a white-knuckle experience with the ceiling fan whilst he enjoys the crusty hotline. Which wasn't as good as the Corey hotline. No. Homer then discovers that all of his previously white work shirts have undergone a thorough pinkening, thanks to Bart putting his lucky red hat in the wash with them. All his workmates wear white, and in a devastatingly cutting line that certainly makes me feel seen, Homer worries that he's not popular enough to be different. (laughs) But with Marge's reassurance, he goes to work, where Mr Burns immediately spots the pink shirt on the plant's CCTV and fears Homer may be a free-thinking anarchist. Hmm. Earning our unfortunate patriarch a cavity search, x-ray examination and interrogation to go with the scorn of his peers. And worse than that, he and we get Dr Marvin Monroe inflicted upon us again. Sending Homer home with his personality test to prove his sanity once and for all. All he has to do is sit down and fill it in. Which he doesn't do. Eventually palming it off on Bart, as Lisa's price of listening to a dirge of a poem about her dead pets is simply too much to pay. Perhaps unsurprisingly, this leads to Homer getting sectioned. 
Off he goes to New Bedlam Rest Home for the Emotionally Interesting, where he is stamped insane, and his rage at The Boy looks set to keep him there for the foreseeable future. Worse than that, his cellmate thinks he's Michael Jackson, despite being a gigantic yellow person with a shaved head. Although Homer doesn't know who Michael Jackson is, so takes this entirely at face value. Then we're treated to an episode of Itchy and Scratchy. <laughs> at last, seems like a while. This is called Bang the Cat Slowly, and it is Scratchy's birthday. Itchy gives him a bomb and pulls Scratchy's tongue out to tie into a ribbon on the box containing it. <laughs> the box lodges in his throat and explodes, throwing his head into the air and eventually impaling it on a party hat. That's a good one. Lisa uses this to make a point about her impending birthday again, as Michael introduces Homer to the rest of the emotionally interesting, including a load of references to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, because of course it does. How could they resist doing that? Mm-hmm. Anyway, Homer gets Michael to call home as he's too embarrassed to do it himself. But given that his voice is pitch perfect, he has Bart believing he's Michael Jackson as well. The family takes steps to get Homer released, and there's a great gag where Marge phones the hospital's wrongly committed hotline, which A, announces that all of its operators are busy, and B, has Crazy by Patsy Cline as hold music. Having spoken to Marge and discovered that Bart actually exists... The doctors give Homer written notification of his sanity, and it's time to get back to normal. Except that Homer invites Michael to visit, and as it turns out, he's only there voluntarily, so he can come immediately. And when Bart, who, remember, hasn't seen him yet, gets wind that Michael Jackson is visiting, he invites most of the town to witness his arrival, who turn on him when it turns out it's not the real deal. Meanwhile, everyone misses Lisa's birthday. Michael Jackson spends time eavesdropping on the young children in their bedrooms, then suggests that to make things up to Lisa, Bart could write a song. And that whilst he can believe what he wants, if he actually wants to believe it, a multiple Grammy award-winning songwriter has stood in his room and willing to help. And I don't want to undersell the rest of it, but that's basically what happens. They write a song and sing it to Lisa, and Lisa cheers up. Hmm. That's when Michael reveals that actually, he never believed he was Michael Jackson in the first place. His real name is Leon Kompowski, a bricklayer from Patterson, New Jersey, <laughs> who talks like Michael Jackson to deal with his own deep-seated anger issues. And that's the end of the episode. Mm. This was the debut of Leon Kompowski, mm-hmm. as voiced by John J. Smith when speaking in his persona of Michael Jackson, Hank Azaria when speaking as himself, and Kip Lennon when singing. He is a patient at New Bedlam, but is there on a voluntary basis, which is good mindfulness on his part. Mm-hmm. Quite pleasing that his behaviour was relatively normal throughout his stay with The Simpsons. Although what will become of him after his reversion to his normal personality, given his anger issues, is an unanswered question. Or is it? For Leon does appear again in Season 29, Episode 8, Mr. Lisa's Opus. It's a future-set episode, though whether it's the canon future or a non-canon future is hard to place, but it certainly could fit in with the canon future. Anyway, the idea of the episode is that Lisa is reliving her birthdays as she looks back on her life heading to college. And we see that on her 14th birthday, Bart and Leon did a new version of Happy Birthday, Lisa, with different verses. Why? Because they can. (laughs) All right. However... Leon was originally planned to return sooner. An episode was pitched where Kompowski would return with a different celebrity persona. That of Prince. Mike Reese mentions this on an Easter egg commentary for Stark Raving Dad, and the details, though sketchy, seem to run like this. Prince himself would voice Leon's new personality. 
and he would encourage the residents of Springfield to loosen up. But there's some kind of stuff around Prince's chauffeur writing a treatment of the script which Prince really liked, but the writers preferred their own version and both sides had a falling out. Okay. Conan O'Brien either wrote or edited a version of the script which would probably put it around season four or five. It's probably for the best that Prince pulled out as it sounds like an absolutely appalling idea. But I feel like there's a very good untold story there. Well, partially told story. Mm. I'd love to get to the bottom of that. But now it's time to answer the big question around this episode's guest voice cast. Who is this Kip Lennon guy? Well, Kip was born in 1960 and he's a musician primarily, being a member of the folk rock band Venice, who sound from that name like an unused Alan Partridge band name. <laughs> Glenn Ponder and Venice! Definitely. Anyway, they've released 13 albums since 1986, so what do I know? Um, he was also known for his Michael Jackson impersonation, funnily enough, uh, and did the singing voice for a five-hour biography miniseries called The Jacksons, An American Dream, broadcast on ABC in late 1992. So I think he might have got that gig off the back of this one. Quite possibly. Apparently this wasn't his last work for the show either, and I'm told he, he sang some of the original songs, including Flaming Moe's, which we'll come to later in this season. So let's talk about John J. Smith. We've dealt with two people previously who wanted to be credited under false names essentially for credibility reasons. Dustin Hoffman as Sam Etik being the most notable of the two. The Simpsons was an animated show and no one knew how long it would last. So up until this point, actors were a little reluctant to put their name on the credits, apart from James Earl Jones, as assumedly once you've been Darth Vader, you stop caring about that kind of thing, as you're above reputation as the Lord and Master of the Dark Side. Well, it was it was a bit of a weird hinterland in James Earl Jones's career of playing Darth Vader, because the original trilogy was done and dusted, and the prequel trilogy was still... About ten years away. Yep, and we're even six years off of the remasters. Yeah. That sort of uh, kicked Star Wars back into being a thing again. Yeah, exactly. Um, so 1990, James L. Jones, bit of a weird place, you know. Star Wars done. Didn't look like it was going to be any more on the, hor- on the horizon. That is a very good point. I hadn't thought about that, but he did have uh, more of a motivation for getting his name out there, I would have thought. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Mm. But guest voices who are musicians, well, up until this point, we've just had Tony Bennett and Ringo Starr, they were, they were fine to be themselves. Mm. Um, although it's worth noting that neither of them actually uses their b- name at birth as their stage name, so there we go. Perhaps it's something to do with being known as an alias. But the person behind John J. Smith lies somewhere between these two camps, although it's said that the alias was used for legal reasons as much as anything else, with the person in question tied down to a relatively onerous contract with their record label. It's probably obvious at this stage that I'm trying to spin my wheels as much as possible not to have to discuss the person in question, but it's a bullet that must be bitten. When Leon Kompowski talks in his Michael Jackson persona, it's actually Michael Jackson. Mm. How did this come to pass? Well, in what might have been taken to be one of the many massive, 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 massive alarm bells about the strange, incredibly rich loner who encouraged children to visit his lawless fairy tale land filled with wild animals and games and fun things for kids despite the owner, at that time, having no children. A place which, need I remind everyone, was walled off from the rest of the world and therefore essentially outside of the bounds of normal society and morals. He was reportedly a huge fan of Bart Simpson. Mm-hmm. At the time, whatever Jackson did was massive news. His eighth solo album, Dangerous, was released around six weeks after the episode aired, 
And I'm sure I don't have to do a full career retrospective for our listeners, who should be very well aware that he was in the public eye from a very young age with his family's band, The Jackson 5, then had an extraordinarily successful solo career with massive hit albums like Off The Wall, Thriller and Bad, and basically ushered in the MTV generation with the long-form music video for Thriller's title track. He was apparently quite happy with the script, asked for a couple of changes, announced to the production staff that he wouldn't be singing, and got Kip Leonard in as an in-joke for his family, as he wouldn't be telling them he wasn't singing. I mean, I'm sure Tito found it hilarious. But that's the level of celebrity and delusion we're dealing with here. Someone who can mess about with primetime American television just to make a joke aimed at ten people that maybe three would get. Mm. The whole thing was a huge coup for The Simpsons, as Bart Mania was slightly on the wane. And we'll start to see the show pivot behind Homer as its undisputed lead character in the next few seasons. But the hype around this episode was a real shot in the arm for a show that I'm not saying was ailing. It was very far from ailing, to be fair. But, you know, it's all good publicity. Mm -hmm. As for Jackson, he had his first trial regarding accusations of the sexual abuse of children in 1993, which was settled out of court, and his second in 2003 for seven counts of child molestation and two counts of intoxicating a minor with alcoholic drinks, all charges of which, I literally have to state, he was acquitted. Rumours of noncery would haunt him for the rest of his career and life, until his death on June 25th, 2009, at the age of 50. After which, still more allegations of sexual abuse of children came into the open. Have I told you how I heard Michael Jackson was dead, by the way? No. I was sat in my, uh, my then flat, which was on the uh, fourth floor, just uh, in the, in the centre of Liverpool. I had the window open because it was quite hot, you know, 25th of June. Um, and I just literally heard somebody walk past at street level and go, Bloody hell, Michael Jackson's dead. <laughs> I thought, who needs Twitter? Yeah. Would you like some did you knows? Indeed. The phone number for the Krusty Hotline is 1909-OU-Clown. <laughs> Speaking of phones, the aforementioned hold music for New Bedlam's wrongly committed hotline is Crazy by Patsy Cline. It was written by Willie Nelson, who will later appear in Season 11, Episode 22, Behind the Laughter. Also, Krusty's Clown College used to be Willie Nelson's house, as revealed in Season 6, Episode 15, Homie the Clown. That is a great one. (laughs) Mr. Burns mentions that Smithers was in the Plants production of Gilbert and Sullivan's comic operetta HMS Pinafore, thus explaining his penchant for bell-bottoms. We will hear chunks of the score from this in Season 5, Episode 2, Cape Fear. Ah, oh, I've stopped talking about episodes that I like a lot more than this one. <laughs> uh, and finally, you will assumedly never see this episode again on television, as it has been pulled from the schedules, as announced by current Simpsons showrunner Al Jean. Mm-hmm. And that's it. That was Stark Raving Dad. There we are. Now, one thing I'm going to start doing, because we're into Season 3, is a meme count... Now, Simpsons memes have exploded in popularity all over the internet at the moment. The way it works is very simple. You take a scene from a classic Simpsons episode and you rework it to be some something political or something just generally funny. So each episode, I'm going to give it a meme count. And this one has a meme count of one. And it's the pink shirt bit. People tend to use Homer wearing a pink shirt as as a metaphor for unwillingly standing out in a crowd. So there we are. Episode 1 of Series 3 has a meme count of 1. We have missed a few memes, haven't we? Um, We've missed loads. There's Homer falling down the gorge, is the the main one I can think of. Um, 
that's come back into meme-ball content recently. I've seen a lot of Lion King memes about, uh, including one where uh, uh, Mufasa falls to his death uh, down Springfield Gorge. Yes. Um, yeah, brilliant. Well, I'm looking forward to that feature in the future, I must say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Feature in the future, that's got a ring to it. Fantastic. And now, Ice Ice Baby. Indeed. Tell me all about it. Okay, so in December 1961... Texan singer-songwriter Bruce Channel released a single called Hey Baby. It spent three weeks at the top of the Billboard Hot 100, selling over a million copies. It was a simplistic, inoffensive song with the catchy chorus of Hey baby, I wanna know if you'll be my girl. Its fame made covers inevitable, with Anne Murray having a minor hit with it in 1982. Far more famous, though, was a diabolical Euro dance version that added an ooh-ah to the chorus. It came out just in time for the 2002 European Football Championships. It was absolutely everywhere then, and its terrible dirge was a bugbear of my formative years. Tony O'Shea, the darts player, uses it as his walk-on music, and I'm only mentioning it because the perpetrator of this crime against music was none other than DJ Otzi who happens to share a name with Otzi the Iceman. I'm mentioning him now, so we never have to speak of him again. Okay, with that out of the way, let's get into the story proper. On September 19th, 1991, when the good folks of the USA were settling down to the season premiere of Series 3 of The Simpsons, husband and wife Helmut and Erica Simon were preparing to go on a hike in the Utzol Alps in the Finelspitze on the Austrian-Italian border. They planned to hike between Hauslobotsch and Tisenjo mountain passes, but being experienced mountaineers, they decided not to walk along the main path, but instead take a big detour to see a glacier. And while on the glacier, they saw something that must have been pretty shocking, for sticking out of the ice was quite clearly a human head and shoulders face down. Ooh. Now, I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, I'd imagine if you're a, if you're a hiker in the Alps, seeing a body is something that you don't want to do but might be relatively common because you know it's quite a dangerous thing to do so anyway they contacted the authorities and the next day the police turned up to examine the body they came equipped with ice axes and tried to chip away at the ice in order to exhume the body when that didn't work they got out the other piece of equipment they brought with them a pneumatic drill fortunately a storm set in and they gave up and the next day, eight teams of mountaineers arrived to do the job properly. The body was carefully removed from the glacier and taken to the office of the medical examiner in Innsbruck, which is the fifth largest city in Austria. It attracted a fair amount of media attention, and the celebrated Austrian journalist Rainer Hosel was present to film the corpse being removed from the ice. Meanwhile, the mountaineers conducted a thorough search of the area and found all manner of items, including tools and clothing. The Iceman was dubbed Utzi, after the Utzol Mountains where he was found. While people awaited the results of lab tests, people wondered about who Utzi was and how he met his fate. Was he a hiker who got lost and succumbed to the mountain? Was he a soldier who had perished in the First World War? Or had something more sinister happened to him? The first person to examine Utzi was an archaeologist called Conrad Spindler, and he concluded that the body was 5,000 years old. And with this, the mood around him completely changed, as scientists realised that they weren't faced with a modern tragedy, but a fascinating artefact of our past. 
Utzi's body had been remarkably well-preserved, naturally mummified in the ice. After he died, he must have laid in the sun for a few days to dry him out, like a piece of leather or something. Then heavy snowfall would have covered him. And when the glacier then approached, the heavy snowfall would have protected him somewhat from the crushing ice. And he remained there, preserved in the ice, for the next five millennia. Until the ice shifted a bit, and he ended up just with his head sticking out. The first autopsy of Otzi was carried out by a team led by Rainer Hen. They conducted various examinations, including of his skin, bones and internal organs. All the time, they were trying to gather evidence in order to paint a picture of what Otzi was up to, what sort of things he would have experienced, and of course, how he died. In 2001, a new team examined Otzi with x-rays and a CT scan. The radiologist on the team, Paul Gosner, ended up making a startling discovery. He contacted the team of the University of Innsbruck and asked them, OK, what can you tell us about the arrowhead in his left shoulder? And their reply was pretty much, what arrowhead in his left shoulder? <laughs> so somehow this vital detail wasn't picked up for 10 years after his discovery. Huh. So finding the arrowhead changed all the theories about his death. So now there was no chance that his death was in any way accidental. It was straight up murder. Well... Murder's a legal term, and they probably didn't have much of a legal system 5,000 years ago. But he was certainly killed in anger by another person. The arrowhead also gave an explanation as to why he was found lying face down. So whoever fired the arrow probably tried to retrieve it. And to do that, they would have turned him over onto his chest and pulled at the arrow with some force. However, the shaft of the arrow broke off in this case. This would explain why the head of the arrow was in his shoulder, but not the shaft. Ah. Having been shot with an arrow, you'd expect to see the arrow shaft sticking up out of his shoulder, making it really obvious. It does make it a bit more um, plausible that it wasn't spotted for that amount of time mm. as well. Absolutely. Now, we know people shot other people with arrows and then pulled the arrow out to use it again, because Otzi probably did it himself. One of the things found near Otzi was a quiver of arrows, some complete, some in the middle of being made. One of the arrow heads had blood from two different people on it, meaning that Otzi probably shot one person, removed the arrow, shot someone else, then removed the arrow again. However, the fact that Otzi was killed by another person only raised more questions. If he was shot, and the person who killed him had time to try and retrieve the arrow, why didn't they take his other stuff? After all, Otzi was well kitted out, with his axe being of particular interest. The blade was three inches long and made of 99.7% copper. Wow. Mm. So traces of arsenic were found in Otzi's hair, which suggested that Otzi was involved in copper smelting and therefore he probably made the blade himself. People theorised that the axe would have been very valuable, especially for the time. So why didn't whoever killed him take it with them? Very odd. Must have been in a hurry, that's the only thing I can mm. think of. Mm. So, plenty of other things have been discovered about Utsi, some fairly trivial, and some being important to his death. So, scientists have been able to analyse pollen found on him, and they determined that it came from plants that grow at various altitudes. So, lots of different pollen, all from lots of different plants. And from that, they concluded that he must have moved around a lot. And this led to speculation that he was on the run and being chased. But on the other hand, when they finally found his stomach which took a while because it had been squashed by the ice and wasn't where it should have been, they found it was full of food. Now, when you have a meal, food stays in your stomach for a couple of hours at most. 
So he must have eaten shortly before his death, and he ate well. So processed grain was found, so he must have eaten something akin to bread. They also found ibex meat and fat, which again means it would have been processed, so it would have been something like bacon. So his last meal could well have been the Czechalithic equivalent of a bacon sandwich. Oh, that's how I want to go. (laughs) So as for other stuff, they found a load of tattoos on his body. About 50. I mean, nothing elaborate like Pokemon or anything like that. But, uh, but, but I've seen them. It's, they sort of look like arithmetical signs, sort of pluses and equals and dots. Okay. You know, so whether that had something to do with his status or if he just liked being tattooed, we've got no idea. It could have been a form of language. Possibly, possibly. Um, they also determined his age. They reckoned he was about 45. Which would have been old. Otzi would have been an old guy back then, and of some status. Which is why his death is so interesting. I mean, so this guy, quite old, ate well, able to make a really good copper axe. So why was he killed? Very, very interesting. Mm. So his DNA was analysed in 2012, and they found a few interesting little nuggets. So first off, he was lactose intolerant. Now, to me, that's not a surprise because tolerance to lactose is a relatively recent thing and it's a good example of selective pressure in evolution. So in early life, all humans can process lactose as it's present in their mother's milk. However, as they get older, this ability to process lactose stops as it would be wasteful to produce enzymes that you can't use. Mm. However, with the advent of dairy farming, it became advantageous to process lactose throughout adulthood. Dairy farming was probably in its infancy around 5,000 years ago, so the fact that Otzi was lactose intolerant is perhaps to be expected. But genetic analysis also revealed the presence of two other organisms. The third was an intestinal parasite called whipworm. So Otzi had worms. Nice. The second is a bacteria that we've talked about on the show before, so I want to see if you can work out what it is. Okay. So it's bacteria. Right. Its scientific name is Borrelia burgdorferi. It's a spirochete. Ah. It's spread by ticks. It's Lyme disease. It's isn't Lyme it? disease. That's and in right. this case, it wasn't psychosomatic. That's right. That's right. So, yep, Otzi had Lyme disease. So, we know that Lyme disease is at least 5,000 years old. And yes, he had real Lyme disease, not psychosomatic or chronic Lyme disease. I'd like to remind people that chronic Lyme disease is not a thing. So now, so far, I've made everything sound quite pally, with teams of scientists taking it in turns to examine Otzi and come up with explanations for him and what he was up to, etc., etc. However, Otzi has been responsible for a surprising amount of controversies. So firstly, there's where he was discovered. He was found in a glacier on the Austrian-Italian border, and there were some discussions as to which country he was discovered in. And to properly answer that question, you need to go back to the First World War. During the First World War, Austria was, of course, part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, one of the defeated central powers, you know, with the map of Europe looking very, very different to how it does today. Hmm. Meanwhile, Italy was on the side of the Allies. And the year after the war concluded, Austria and Italy signed the Treaty of Saint-Germain-en-Laye, which saw the Austria-Hungarian Empire dissolved. Important to the story, though, was what happened to the region of Tyrol, the mountainous region where Utsi was discovered. Before the war, it belonged completely to Austria. After the treaty, Italy got the southern half of it. 
The border was defined as the watershed between the rivers Inn and Etch. However, the very glacier that Otzi was discovered on made things complicated, as its presence made it difficult to work out exactly where that watershed was. While the people who discovered Otzi initially believed they were in Austria, modern geographical techniques revealed that he was in fact in Italy, a hundred yards from the border. So South Tyrol therefore claimed the property rights to Otzi, but as they were sensible and scientific, they let the team at the University of Innsbruck complete their investigation before he was moved to the South Tyrol Museum of Archaeology in Bolzano, which is the capital of South Tyrol. And then there's the issue of the idea of a finder's fee for the people who found Utsi. And the way I think about it is this. If instead of finding a 5,000-year-old corpse, the Simons had found a chest full of gold coins, then they would have been eligible for a 25% fee of the value of, of it from the Italian state. Hmm. And that was according to Italian law at the time. However, how can you put a price on Otzi? He's a priceless artefact who tells us an awful lot about our past. And he also brings in a fair amount of tourist revenue to the museum where he's housed. Well, in 1994, the Italian government thought the Simons deserved a finder's fee and offered them the princely sum of one million lira. Ah, about, about a tenner? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that may sound like a lot, but in reality it was a token amount worth about 5,000 US dollars. You know, not an insignificant amount of money, but, you know, way, way less than... I'd rather have it than not. Nearly ten years later, the Simons filed a lawsuit in Bolzano where they claimed that they were the discoverers of Otzi and they weren't seeking a fee of a few thousand. They were after 300,000 euros. And this is where things get even weirder. I mean, maybe they got a sniff of the money, but two new people came forward claiming that they discovered Utsi first. The first person was a Slovenian climber called Magdalena Mohajak. She claimed that she fell down a crevice and discovered Utsi. Must have been a traumatic experience. I'll say. Yeah. yeah well, scary enough falling down a crevice, let alone having a look around and realising that you're next to a corpse. <laughs> After hauling herself out of the crevice... She went back to a nearby mountain hut. It was there that she found Helmut Simon, told him where Utsi was, and asked him to take photos of the body. The other claimant was Sandra Nemeth, another tourist, this time from Switzerland. She claimed that she'd found Utsi before anyone else, and she laid claim to him by doing quite an odd thing. Uh, she spat on him. She claimed that if a DNA test was done, it would match to hers. So unfortunately it doesn't quite work out like that. No, no. If you discover a frozen body in the ice and wish to claim it, don't spit on it. You're not a cat. Anyway, so in 2005, a Bolsonaro court threw out the claims of the two women. Nemeth's claim was concluded to be totally unfounded, but Jacques went on record to claim that she had written to the court in Bolsonaro a few times after the discovery, but had no response. Nevertheless, that wasn't the end of the matter. Eventually, the case reached the Court of Cassation, the highest court in Italy, in 2008. The Simons and the Italian government reached a compromise where the Simons were paid €150,000 and court costs for the discovery of Utsi. Sadly for Helmut Simon, he never saw any of the money because he died in 2004. Oh. And the death of Helmut Simon forms part of a bit of modern folklore, the curse of Utsi. So it's inspired by the curse of Tutankhamun, where it's said that everyone involved in his excavation met a grisly end. And this is really weird, right? Howard Carter's team opened the tomb of Tutankhamun in 1922, and everyone involved in that expedition is now dead. What's all that about? 
It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. Think about that. So now, now this is a big sidetrack, but I do find the Curse of Tutankhamun very interesting. So Lord Carnarvon, who was a major sponsor of Howard Carter, died a few weeks after the tomb was opened. He'd been bitten by a mosquito and then managed to cut the inflamed bite with a razor while shaving. Which reminds me of the Black Adder quote. The previous returning officer tragically accidentally brutally stabbed himself in the stomach while shaving. The cut became infected and he died of sepsis while in Cairo. So as for the Curse of Utsi, as I've already said, Halamut Suwon passed away in 2004. Now, given that he was a big fan of hiking, can you guess how he died? Uh, either a heart attack brought on by over-hiking, or some kind of a fall. Well, the answer is hiking, of course. So, and yeah, he was on a hike, and he was back hiking not that far from where Utsi was discovered when he was caught in a freak blizzard and he fell to his death. I mean, before it was known that that's what his fate was... He was reported missing, and the mountain rescue team went to look for him. The head of this team was a man called Dieter Warneck, and just an hour after Helmut Simon's funeral, Warneck died of a heart attack. Oh. And just a few months later, Conrad Spindler, the first person to examine at sea, died of complications from multiple sclerosis. Rainer Henn, the man who conducted the first autopsy on Utsi, died in a car crash en route to give a lecture about the ice mummy. And the mountaineer who led Hen to the Iceman's body, Kurt Fritz, died in an avalanche at the age of 52. And he was the only person in his party to be hit by the avalanche. And finally, the journalist Rainer Hosel, the man who filmed Utsi being removed from the ice, very sadly died of the brain tumour at the age of 47. Now, of course, I'm a sceptic and I don't believe for a second that there is a curse, but it's kind of morbidly fascinating. That's a lot of coincidences. It, it is. It, it's, it's a big sort of conflation of there's a few pre-existing medical conditions that were likely to to come to their unfortunate uh, fruition around the same time a couple of accidents that could happen to anybody and a couple of, of deaths of people with sort of higher risk hobbies in the pursuit of those hobbies but yet yeah. the timing is uh, the timing is the main thing there yeah but it's it, it's a bit of a texas sharpshooter because hundreds of people have been associated with Utsi in some way, whether examining examining him, digging him up, whatever. Mm. If you just take a few hits, then obviously it's going to look like there's a pattern, but really there's so much noise because there's so many other people. Coincidence becomes an easy explanation. And as you say, mountaineering is a dangerous pastime, and you know he was discovered 30 years ago, and that's a long time for people to die of whatever they're going to die of. So there you have it, the story of Utsi, the Iceman, a priceless scientific artefact and a 5,000-year-old murder mystery. Now, funnily enough, I had a a very easy time finding a uh, reciprocal Simpsons reference for this one. I bet you've alighted on the same one as me, and I bet you our uh, our listeners have as well. Oh, is it Jasper? Frostilicus. Yes. Yes, yes. So in... uh, Season 9, episode 17, Lisa the Simpson. The, the subplot is that uh, Jasper clears out the freezer at the Quickie Mart of ice cream and freezes himself in it, awaiting a time when robot wives are efficient and cheap, um, and leaving instructions for his trousers to be altered as fashion dictates. This leads to Arpu converting the Quickie Mart into a freak show of sorts, the Freaky Mart. <laughs> and to be, be honest, it's probably better than the A-plot in that one. Uh, but there we go, yes, Frostilicus. Yeah, now, 
that one, that gives that episode immediately a mean count of one, because of course when Jasper's fought out, he picks up a moon pie and goes, Moon pie, what a time to be alive. Tom, I'd just like you to look to your right very slightly <gasps> and tell me what you see. Oh, there. you have a moon pie. Look I at do. that. What a time to be alive. Moon pie since 1917, salted caramel, and it proudly states that it's artificially flavoured. Yeah. Brilliant. For anyone who's not had one, it's like a massive wagon wheel. It looks like a massive wagon wheel. It, it, it looks like a double-decker wagon wheel. Absolutely love it. Get it from any of those millions and millions of American sweet shops that sprung up about five years ago. Oh, it's one of those ones where it's got a ridiculously long list of ingredients. And because it's sold in the EU, maybe this will change in the future, boo-hoo-hoo. So, so there's a few asterisks on the back. First asterisk, derived from a genetically modified source. Maybe we can have GM crops now that we've left the EU. And the second asterisk may have an adverse effect on activity and attention in children. Now, what's that for? Uh, oh, it's for the colours. E102, E110 and E133. Ah, the good stuff. Yeah. I haven't had that for yeah. a while. That'll be like Tartrazine or Sunset Yellow or something. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. And a little little tip for anybody uh, wanting to get their Tartrazine and Sunset le uh, Yellow levels up through a moon pie... Ten seconds in the microwave leads to a piping hot treat. Ooh, nice. But I think that's enough about moon pies. Yeah, there now. you go. you got some bonus moon pie facts today, people. And indeed, enough from us. Uh, that was Retrospecticus. We are into season three. Hooray. Uh, less, less nonsense next week. <laughs> yes. Let's never speak of this particular episode again. Indeed. Much like The Simpsons itself is doing. Don't forget, you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospecticus, email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.